Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Your bank should be solving your problems, not creating them. Platinum Bank partners with Twin Cities executives to help them grow their business. Learn more online at PlatinumBankMN.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. I actually pushed back against this. I resisted hiring people for quite a while because the idea of keeping other people alive worried me a lot. I don't even do well with plants. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Try, if you can, to remember the days before your phone would turn your words into targeted ads that followed you around the internet. In the early days of the World Wide Web, routing users to a specific business website took a lot of effort and quite a bit of detective work. You had to think what words would a person search if they wanted to find your product. It was a puzzle, and Nina Hale loves puzzles. After years of working in advertising and digital strategy for other companies, Nina set out on her own in 2005 to launch a performance marketing agency that she called Nina Hale. It grew into the largest SEO-focused agency in Minnesota, working with major national brands including United Health Group, Renewal by Anderson, and Land Lakes. In 2014, with 50 employees, Nina converted the agency to an ESOP, an employee stock ownership plan. She then began her long goodbye, retiring in 2020, at which time the agency, now close to 100 employees, renamed itself Collective Measures. Nina has become a big advocate of ESOPs, and she mentors other founders on planning their exits, but it wasn't for lack of interest in the industry. You'll hear her advice on leadership, as well as the evolution of digital marketing and what it means for businesses today. She should know, Nina was drawn to the internet long before Wi-Fi. I had a dial-up modem, and my father amazingly paid these long-distance bills and there were prototype online communities, one at the IBM Center in, um, in upstate New York, a couple of other ones. So I was going online at an early age, chatting with people in 1984. So How did you even get the idea to do that? Were your parents into computers? Or? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, I don't quite know. I think that I don't even that's a really good question. I don't quite know. A friend of mine. His father worked at Control Data, and so he had access to some online things as well. Okay. But I don't think that it was at the same time. I think that, or I think that I was doing my thing early on as well. I think that something my dad was involved with gave him a computer or a modem or something, so... And what were you talking to people about, <laughs> and what did, you, what did you like about it? Oh, in these days and ages, it's just impossible to think how dangerous and weird it was. <laughs> right. So here here I was, I would go online mm -hmm. and I would say, hi, I'm a 14-year-old girl. Oh, right. Who would like to talk? <laughs> and I would just chit-chat with people. And it was like, you know, bored programmers in the evenings in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was their kids also mm -hmm. doing that. So mm -hmm. it was it was always safe, but it was just an odd weird moment in time. And sure. I think a lot of what happened to me was throughout my entire career was that same thing, this moment in time that somehow I was there. But I was always kind of interested in the online communities. And that really brought me forward into my career and a lot of other things that went along the way. So did you think to yourself, there's something in computer sciences? Did you know, I mean, how did you even articulate in the 80s what that would be in a time long before TikTok and Twitter and right. everything else? You know, it wasn't the computers. It was the people. Hmm. And I have always been interested in the idea of subculture. 
And what are these groups doing? What is motivating people and exciting them among, you know, to speak to each other, to be excited? I, I love the idea. And when I used to hire people, I was always looking for passion and creativity and energy. And, and I assumed that people were coming to me already with a good resume. Mm-hmm. And so then I was looking for these special sparks. And that was sort of what always interested me as well, is these, uh, it was speaking to people. And so in Minneapolis, there was also at one point, there was a bulletin board service, and this was in the 90s. So mm-hmm. it was sort of pre-World Wide Web. And this is where you would dial into a network. It was sort of what AOL was. I was going to say, I'm hearing the AOL dial-up sound in my head right now. (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) it. Um, Exactly. Um, And there was this dial-up network. and, And those of us in Minneapolis, we would talk to each other. And it was called Bitstream Underground. And Bitstream, my goodness, a bunch of the people who were on Bitstream, this was in the 90s, turned into incredible superstars. Were you friends with Nancy Lyons then? I I remember her describing this exactly when she came on the show. I was friends with Nancy Lyons and we're going to have dinner tonight at a friend's house. She was part of Bitstream. Mm -hmm. She was a big part of Bitstream. Um, The the person who founded Geek Squad Mm -hmm. was part of Bitstream. Um, Chank, who is a big font. But then there's all these other people all over the place who were who ended up in creative advertising positions within the Twin Cities. So it was another one of those things that it always drew me, but it wasn't the computers. Uh-huh. I have no idea how to fix a computer. I have no interest in computer science, but, um, but I'm also a puzzle person hmm. and I love puzzles. And so that led into some of the search things that I really kind of took off my career. Fascinating. So I would have thought maybe you would go to college and major in business or psychology, but that is not the route you went. No, no. I went to an Ivy League school and I, in not in Minnesota, mm-hmm. and I got a, which as you know, if you want to do business in Minnesota, you go to school in Minnesota. That you is, think? Oh, yes. Oh, That's a very important thing, okay. which I learned. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went to an Ivy League school. You went to Brown. Brown University. Yes. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I had these amazing friends and roommates who were all these super cool New Yorkers, and I could just ride in their wake. And I studied folklore. <laughs> Why? What does Ex- that mean? <laughs> exactly. What does it mean? Okay, so I will tell you what they have now renamed it. Uh-huh. They have now renamed it cultural anthropology. Ah. Ah, yes. And Makes sense. They have renamed it that so that people can get jobs. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't but, as worried about that when you went to school? No, stupidly, I was not. I was not even aware that there was a career services um, at the college. Okay. So I was just there for the learning. I was there for the love of learning and that's great. I've mm-hmm. I've been a lifelong learner. I keep going back to school. I absolutely love to to learn new things, but um I came home <laughs> and it was a little hard to get a job. Huh. Shockingly Did enough. Did you know what you even wanted what would I, have been the dream job? I didn't know what the dream job was. I was really interested in being creative. I wanted to do creative things. The fact is, is that I am not actually a creative person. Hmm. Now, I'm a crafty person, and I'm very good at following directions and becoming expert at that. You literally made the dress that you're wearing today. I literally made the dress I'm wearing today. I made the bracelet I'm wearing today. I make lots of things, but I learn how to do it. Hmm. I'm not terribly good at, at um, creating it's starting with a blank page and okay. creating art. So I see myself as a craftsperson, but not necessarily an artist. Mm-hmm. So I realized at one point that actually I loved working in an office. So I worked in radio and that was fun. I was working in the advertising department. I was scheduling ads. It was mm. just media. It mm-hmm. was, I liked it. It was a puzzle. It was mm-hmm. this really fun puzzle. And, um, and that was great. Um, I got bored. I I would finish scheduling the ads after about four or five hours. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have enough to do. And I thought at that point um, that maybe it was time for me to go back to school and get 
a advanced degree. I decided to go to business school um, because I knew that I liked working with people. I liked working in offices. And I didn't want to be totally broke all the time. (laughs) (laughs) How about that? Yes. We were broke all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, my husband and I, I think we got together around that time when I was still at the radio stations or even before I started working there. And, you know, he was working, I was working. We were both underemployed. And but the main thing was that I that I realized all of my friends were there sort of these punk rockers and these creative types. And some of them even said, why are you going to business school? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, later on, I've forgiven them all. But there was definitely a period of schadenfreude in which I sort of thought, ah, well, look who made it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, of course. Yeah, you know, it's a little bit snarky. But um, but they've actually all made it too. the people who who did that in the beginning. But a lot of people didn't understand why I wanted to go to business school why I wanted to work in offices. And I think, of course, they did later on. What did you get out of business school? So much. I got a lot of math basics. I learned game theory. I learned statistics. I learned accounting. So I got a really good financial background. I learned operations. I loved operations. Hmm. And me and one other student were operations student of the year Hmm. because operations and just in time is a puzzle. And it leads back again. You're trying to solve this intricate puzzle. But I also got a double major in communications and marketing. And so I said, well, this this is what happens when you put a marketing major also doing an operations thing. Of course, she's going to get operations student of the year. She marketed her way into it. Sure, of course. (laughs) But I loved it. So there was, you know, operations teaches you all the supply chain things, everything. Um, So there was just like all the classes in grad school I loved too. I loved Mm -hmm. the cohort. I loved the professors. It was just wonderful. Did you start thinking at that time, I want to own my own business? Was entrepreneurism something that was even on your radar? No, it really wasn't. I um, I didn't, in a lot of ways, I didn't quite know what I wanted, but um, I have always been somewhat risk averse financially. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of starting my own business had not occurred to me at that point. Mm-hmm. So when did it? Did you, did you get out and start working for someone else and then start seeing the opportunity? It occurred to me when I quit my job and knew that my resume was toast because I had been at a couple of different jobs beforehand. And I thought, I'm going to go into consulting. I'm going to do this on my own for a while. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like a lot of people who go into business on their own, I'm always, I have so much respect for people who don't start their own business through a precipitous moment. I had a precipitous moment in which I left my job and there were there were legal there was weird things going on with that. What but, what kind of job? What were you doing? Oh gosh, I was working at Capella University and oh. I was in charge of the online marketing group there. Okay. And we were doing search and we were doing advertising. I was calling up this this unknown place called Facebook trying to buy <laughs> advertising. What what year was this? This was in um, early 2005, okay. 2005, and I was calling up this unknown place called LinkedIn, trying to do this sort of hookup with them because we did graduate programs. So I, I loved it, and I had a great boss, and, and he and I are still really good friends, and the VP was fantastic. The CEO were, was fantastic. So there were, there was, I loved being at Capella. It was really great. And at this point, you were not having to dial up on the motor. You no. had Wi-Fi. <laughs> I wasn't. I and, wasn't. But you you kind of stayed, I, I assume, stayed with computers yeah. and, and the internet as it evolved. So you were you were right there knowing yeah. what the latest trends were. Absolutely. Yeah. Understanding search. Yeah. I was at Digital River in 99, and I launched uh, a I launched National Geographic's first email campaign. Mm. I was at Cicerone for a while when I had a kid and I didn't want to. They kept putting me with the East Coast clients at Digital River because <sighs> okay. I wasn't um, I wasn't 
afraid of a different type. You know, it's not yeah. it's not the Minnesota style. And sure. I was comfortable with it. I didn't think people were yelling at me when they were just trying to <laughs> get clarity. You had survived out <laughs> on the East. Yes. Exactly. And um, so I was doing internet. And I was actually, that was the one thing when I was in grad school is that I knew I wanted to work in internet. And so I really specifically started trying to do more and more of that. Mm-hmm. And and I was taking jobs that led me in more and more to working on the burgeoning World Wide Web, working on the Internet. I had been doing advertising for grad school. So it was definitely coalescing mm-hmm. around the turn of the century. Okay. Turn wow. Century. Turn of the century. <laughs> okay. So you're leaving a, a job mm-hmm. um, and and you're not not looking to start another one. And that's the moment that you think, what, what, what were you thinking you would consult on? Yeah. I was thinking I would consult on exactly what I ended up consulting on. Uh-huh. And um, I had been in the client business before, and so I had these wonderful clients who I was still in touch with, and I would be sending them things that I thought related to them, even when I was at Capella. I was still in touch with, um, with somebody at Fargo Electronics, and I was in touch with some people at Hazelden Treatment Center. And so what I, when I left, I thought, okay, I'm going to consult on buying search engine ads, doing email, doing sort of a strategic digital plan. How are you going to make money on the internet? My goal and how I started my initial sort of tagline was drive revenue from online sources. And that really hasn't changed all that much. Since Mm -hmm. then, I was always interested in performance-based marketing. I wanted to be able to put a dollar amount to what the efforts were that my client did. So um, I called these clients and I said, hey, I'm going to go out on my own and do this work. I'm wondering if you can give me a quote. All I, and I really hadn't thought about them coming over to me. I just said, could you give me, um, a, you know, could you give me a testimonial? And both of them said, I have a project for you. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was great because I hadn't thought it through. Now, my husband and I lived in a we owned a duplex, and so our mortgage was being paid for each month if we wanted to. My husband was working in journalism, and so he had an income coming in. And so I founded the company on $2,800 of things, and most of that was a website that I had these great people in town who are still working. Um, they created my brand. They created my image, and they created a website for me, and I bought a laptop, and I actually went and got an office space. I didn't do well working from home. It was pre the days of having a home office. Uh Our house was not very nice. I mean, (laughs) or at least our duplex space wasn't all that great. So I got an office, and I just felt more real for me at the time Mm -hmm. having that. So all of those things cost $2,800. Amazing. And within the first month, I had income coming in. And it was just you. Were you thinking at that point already, Nina Hale agency is going to be more than Nina Hale? No. And and this is advice that I give to anybody who goes out on their own, is the people who go out on their own and they say, oh, I'm really excited about this because I'm going to be able to work part time now. Mm. I'm going to have more time with my kids. I'm going to have long lunches. I'm going to go to museums in the middle of the day. Right. Absolutely not. Yeah. If you, I think, I don't, I only know one or two people who have succeeded being able to keep that balance. I didn't. I, I was working 70-hour work weeks for four to five years. Mm-hmm. And that is about average. That's what I tell people is that's what you're going to be doing. And so you have to make sure that you actually love what you're doing. You have to make sure that you're going to be going into something that is actually fun. Mm-hmm. When I put my kid to bed and I went back to work, I was having a great time. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is really cool. I'm figuring out neat stuff. Sure. You also have to, in the early days, be willing to not only do the work, but sell it. I say that all the time. That's exactly how I say it, too. <laughs> 
you have to be able to do that, especially if you're going out on your own. And if unless you've got a partner, mm-hmm. and I didn't, yeah, you have to do it and sell it. And, and you have and to be did, good at both. I was going to say, and I mean, and were <laughs> you? Were you better at one than the other? Did you like doing the actual work more or selling it? I loved doing the actual work. I loved meeting people and hearing about their challenges. Mm-hmm. And that naturally sold the work hmm. because I was passionate and um, and talented at the work. Yeah. So I didn't love selling, but I was a good salesperson anyways. How quickly did you hire staff? I actually pushed back against this. I resisted hiring people for quite a while because the idea of keeping other people alive worried me a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't even do well with plants. <laughs> I was trying to keep my child alive. I was going to say you did have children. Exactly. <laughs> but that's enough pressure. But I had help. Right. <laughs> exactly. So will she get help to grow the agency? We'll find out after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Is your bank a partner or simply a provider? In today's environment, businesses need a bank that can move quickly and act creatively. Platinum Bank understands the Twin Cities market, partnering with clients to overcome challenges and capitalize on opportunities. Their financial products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of your organization. To learn how Platinum Bank can be an asset to your business, visit www.platinumbankmn.com. Platinum Bank providing a means to a dream. Nina's SEO consulting is really taking off. Now she's got to decide if she's going to grow. So um, I, it was about a full year before I hired somebody. Mm-hmm. And then an, about another year until I hired somebody else. And at that point, I finally dove in. And I said, I just, I really loved working with clients. And I didn't want to say no to exciting projects. And so then after that, we hired, when I kind of gave into it about t- 2007, I said, we, at that point, we, had, we hired about 12 people a year, mm. every year until for a while. So more or less. The, the agency was, was how many, at the, at the time that you stepped away, Ooh. which we'll talk about a little later, how many employees did you have? When I sold it, but I sold it to an ESOP and I kept working, mm-hmm. we were at about 50. Okay. When I stepped away, fully stepped away from not going, like, not being part on the staff anymore, we were at about 75 or 80. Hmm. But we transitioned. As soon as I sold it, I started what I called long goodbye. It was too long of a goodbye, but I started a long goodbye. So it was a very planned out exit. Um, and at that point, Donna Robinson, who is the wonderful CEO of the company now, and she had been with me beforehand, she started transitioning into the CEO role. Okay. Um, I think that for every successful entrepreneur, there comes a point, I mean, if you're doing it well early on, as it did for you, where you have to decide, am I just going to do the amount of work that I can do and be happy on my own, or am I building something bigger than myself? Was that obvious to you? Did you wrestle with it? It, it, that was a situation. Um, and that was that first sort of inflection point in which I thought, I am going to hire other people. I, I love working with these clients. I want to, I'm getting calls from exciting people, projects. I want to work with them. I had another big moment in which, and we sat down with a consultant at the time, a growth consultant, in which I think we were at about 15 people, very profitable, doing really well, um, fun staff, everything. But, and, and we made the decision, we went through sort of the pros and cons of growth versus stability. And, um, and the growth, we, were, we would have lost our culture. We knew that there were aspects of the culture that we were going to start losing as we grew larger. And did we want to do that? But part of it is that I was working with such wonderful people that I wanted people to want to stay at the company and to be able to have opportunities for growth. And if the company didn't grow, they wouldn't be able to grow and they would move on. And, and that really became a deciding factor around that growth. And mm. In addition to the client, 
But I, I wanted to be able to continue to give people this opportunity. Were there ever moments after you started hiring people where the work dried up? Did, did you ever have sleepless nights? You know, yeah, I had sleepless nights because there was a couple of times in which things got tight. But um, actually, in the entire history that I was there, we had one month that was unprofitable. So, and I squirrel away money. So I'm constantly, so I was constantly sort of tucking away everything and buying paper in bulk and doing all sorts of weird things. We also had a, just an absolutely horrible office space with bees and oh, bees. there were wasps growing in the rafters. It was just, it was kind of wretched. So I sometimes did not spend enough money on the amenities. Interesting. And other things. I would try to obviously spend a lot of money on the staff because um, you, you know, if you're going to sell yourself as the experts in something, which that's what the value statement that I had decided we were going to do. You have to you have to pay to have the best people sure. as well. I want to talk a little bit about the work you were doing and that expertise. I mean, you mentioned Facebook, but it was <laughs> early days. Yeah. It was before a lot of the social media platforms that we use today even existed. Mm-hmm. What was search like? What was the internet like? Yeah, um, the internet was a lot of banner ads. You would buy a lot of banner ads. You wouldn't have a lot of measurement on it. The internet was search. And so at least the internet that I was doing was search and email. And I didn't do a lot of banner ads because I couldn't measure it. Hmm. So it was getting to the top of Google naturally, what we called search engine optimization. So natural search is what we called it. And then buying search ads. So Google AdWords and Yahoo AdWords, MSN, all of those types of things. And that was, that was an actual ad platform. And those ones you could track as well. So you knew how much you were paying. You would send people to a lead form. And I always worked with clients who were doing e-commerce or lead generation. I was going to ask, did the clients generally even know no. what you were talking about? Did they understand what SEO was or did they just come and say, we understand that the Internet is a thing. Help us navigate it. Yeah, that was actually probably one of the bigger challenges was that I had a lot of clients who didn't know about it. And I would have to spend a lot of time trying to explain to them why they wanted to do that. And so that that was hard to be able to do that. Luckily, I had a lot of clients in the beginning who were already doing it, who wanted to do it. And so they would seek me out. And I was a solo operator, but I was working with big brands doing this. And by doing it, you mean using the Internet to advertise or drive traffic to their business. Yeah, I was getting I was getting my clients to the top of Google searches. Mm -hmm. I was getting them. If you did a if you did a search for shoe store, every single result that would come up on the maps was a Red Wing shoe store because they were my client and we were doing it early on. Uh-huh. If you did a search for, um, you know, for uh, addiction treatment, Google, you know, Hazelden Treatment Center would come right up to the top. Mm-hmm. But um, so I was working with clients doing that. And, and were there a lot of bigger companies doing the same thing? Did you feel like you were just this renegade pioneer? <laughs> there were some other people doing it. Then we had a Yahoo. We had a Yahoo user group where we would talk to each other. Uh-huh. Some of them were working at the companies and became my clients. There, or there were some other people doing it. But I was I was one of the few. There was a few other agencies. I came from an agency that had been doing it. Cicerone had done it before I did. Mm-hmm. And so there were definitely there were other people doing it, but not very many. And yeah. I was good at it. I mean. I'm not going to say I'm good at everything, but I was good at that. <laughs> what and and back to that yeah. solving what is puzzles and I mean what yeah. what was it that you liked about this challenge of yeah. showing up in these search engines? Yeah, so what you would end up doing is that you did a lot of keyword research. So you c- go all the way back to the whole idea of um of a folklore degree <laughs> and Google would open up all the searches that people are doing on different words. And you would have to type in the word. You would have to be looking for different things that people would search for. So you had to constantly be thinking about, what would these people be searching for? And then Google would give you some ideas. If, if 
of of what some other things that were near that might be. Mm-hmm. And they would tell you how many people search on that each month. And so I had a client come to me who sold, um, they sold trailers. They sold, um, you know, drive behind your car trailers. Mm-hmm. And they and they said, well, we want to make sure that we can sell our SURVs. That's for sport utility recreational vehicle. Mm. So please make our website come to the top for SURVs. And I would come back to them after doing this keyword research, and I would say, I know you really like the term SURV, and that's what you want to put on your website. But guess what? All of your clients call it a toy hauler. And so it was that type of thing of getting really down to the customer. It was all customer-centric of saying, you want to call your Toro and you want to call this a snow thrower because that's what the engineers are saying. This is what it does. It throws snow. Mm -hmm. But actually, are you open to the idea of calling it a snow blower? Right. Because that's that's what what your clients are calling it. Yep. So it's a beautiful way of being able to help your, bring your clients into becoming more customer-centric. Is that work fundamentally the same today as it was when you started? No, it is not the same today. And because Google doesn't really allow you to choose all of those things anymore, and Google and, and the search engines, everything has gotten much smarter. So so before we had to we had to figure out what the customer was doing and now they know right uh-huh. your phone knows what you're doing all the time right. your computer knows what you're doing all the time and that's how you buy ads actually mm-hmm. is based upon is based upon the cookies that are set upon people's phones, based upon your your TV knows what you're watching. Sure. Every, everything knows everything. Anything I mention to you right here, I'm going to see an ad served up on Instagram yes. when I log on. So, Absolutely. So how did that change the work that your team was doing? Oh, it became much more sophisticated, actually, because what you needed to be able to do was to really start thinking about what the real strategy was, and you had to really get down into the data and and figure out how that relationship so became less about the upstream. What's the word that we're going to buy? We're going to buy toy hauler. And when somebody searches on it, we're going to pay a certain amount every time somebody clicks on it. Now what is happening is that you're paying for to try to get the customer in a non-creepy way, <laughs> even though it's kind of all super creepy. And it became much more data-driven about the full life cycle of the customer. You're trying to really pay for the final thing once somebody sees an ad, they think about it for a while, they see another ad. It's a whole continuum that you're trying to get into. So it really becomes about this data-driven analytical approach. Mm -hmm. Whereas before it was, when I was doing it, it was much more about, well, let's click on this keyword. It's going to be cool. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the the creep factor because I think we're all aware and a little weirded out by, you know, the the data that is out there on us today. I, I think we just didn't understand as much. I mean, it wasn't as sophisticated when you started out. But but do you feel like how how do you feel about the way that has evolved? Has it gone too far? Is it just that we understand it better than we did when you started? Um, I think it's a bit of each. And um, and truthfully, you know, I fully retired two years ago. So there's even still a lot that I'm not even aware of how creepy it's gotten. But it, I was floored even two, three years ago how creepy it was. I, I, I really go back and forth. I feel that the Internet is so dangerous and detrimental to kids mm-hmm. and to children and what social media does to self-esteems and to different things. And I think that the creep factor is is really overwhelming. I think that the data and I and I hate how divisive our country has gotten and I blame a lot of that on social media. Mm-hmm. Um at the same time, you know, the internet is amazing. And and allows people to find out who they are, who, you know, and to learn everything about other cultures and other places. And there's amazing things that it's done. 
Um, and, you know, if you want, if you're going to see an ad, maybe it's good you can see an ad that actually matters to you, that right. you care about. And that really is an argument, and it's a very valid argument. Yeah. So I kind of go back and forth. I'm, I'm sort of acutely aware of some of the creep factor more than others, but I'm also acutely aware of how wonderful things can be and how much the internet has changed. Right. And it really, you, you really can't imagine any business today not doing some of the things that, that you were kind of teaching them they needed to do yeah. when you started out. No, if you, if, and this was early on in which I, I heard actually it was, you know, one of the consulting companies said there is no digital consumer. There are just consumers, hmm. and consumers consume everywhere. Digital is one of those places. Sure, yeah. Omnichannel took a lot of long time <laughs> for you. people to understand that. <laughs> That's um, the term. I, I'm Thank curious. You. I mean, obviously, what 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 you specialized in essential to any industry, so important, and yet very specific. Were you ever tempted, especially as your agency started to grow, to broaden out and start offering other services? Well, we um. You know, actually, for a while, we became, I became actually more tactical. Now, this was earlier on in which I realized that I had a better niche if I was being tactical, and I only did search. And I proudly said, I'm not, I'm not going to do a strategic plan for you. I'm going to execute search tactics for you. And that also allowed me to go to different agencies and to work with them. Mm. Although then at one point I realized they were all sending in every single media person to my little presentations, to my dog and pony shows, and they were all furiously taking notes. <sighs> at that point, I thought, mm, maybe I won't do this. But we did consider it, um, especially once the agency was bigger. We really thought about adding creative services. What advice would you give to, to businesses? It's kind of an essential. You can't mm. really avoid it if you want to be successful. Yeah, you can't avoid it if you want to be successful. You have to really think about, there's so much more around the values-based and what is your message. It's, it's sort of the same thing, but before all you needed to do was just to be on the internet. And now you have to figure out really where your audience is. Because, you know, we always, we were always so much about going to a website. And your customers may have incredibly deep connection with you and never once visit your website. Hmm. So it's not really about that. It's really about creating a relationship and a feeling with your customers. And what is the feeling that your company evokes and comes about with? So that I think that that's a big part of it is, is how are you going to do that and how are you going to measure it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it still comes down to most of us get up and go to work every morning trying to make money for somebody. Hmm. There still are some great people who are going because they have, you know, because they have a vision, because they have a dream. They're working for, for a bigger vision. But a lot of us are still trying to, you know, make money for somebody. Sure. And, I, and one of our sort of unofficial goals of the company or unofficial sayings was always get your client their Christmas bonus. And so really thinking about that, what is the, what, if you're going into business and if you're trying to advertise on the internet is how are you going to actually make money? What is the end thing? How are you going to measure it? How is it going to lead into the ongoing purpose of what the company is doing? And also, what are your, again, is constant idea of what are your customers looking for? Mm -hmm. What do they want? And so, so a lot of customers want more than just the best price or anything. It's, there's so much more values-based things going on in business right now and people's relationships with brands. Right. Uh, Donna Robinson had worked at Space 150, and they had created a lot of websites and done a lot of that. So she knew how great it would be if we could take our expertise in in um in lead generation into the conversion rate of customers and be able to create the websites for them and those landing pages mm, sure but she also at the same time knew how difficult it was to be running a development business the good thing about what we were doing is that it was very steady you would hire a client would hire you and you would have a year contract and and usually we would keep the client because we would do a good job. So we had these long-term clients 
And we always knew exactly what our monthly revenue was going to be, how much money we were going to make. So there, I think that there always have been temptations. Again, because I was somewhat risk averse financially, we didn't make a huge amount of changes. But as as things changed and became more um, omni-channel, we added in more services that were really performance-driven. Okay. So a lot more banner ads, a lot of over, um, a lot of TV ads, and a lot of more sort of what you would consider to be traditional uh, advertising. You very quickly went from being this um, solo entrepreneur. I don't know if you even called yourself that, but you just you saw an opportunity, you started working on it, you built a business. Next thing you know, you're running in a significant agency mm-hmm. that's working with a lot of big clients. Did you have? Support. I mean, was there a day at which you looked in the mirror and said, oh, my gosh, I'm a CEO. Like, you know, like what was that transformation like for you? There was a day in which I looked in the mirror and I said, "Ooh, I'm very employable. (laughs) (laughs) And that was good. There actually there was a really big moment and it was at a Christmas party that we had. And we were at Bryant Lake Bowl. And so until we got to a bigger, bigger size, we went to Bryant Lake Bowl for our Christmas parties. And I got up on a chair to take a photo with my phone, and I looked out, and we had all the lanes, and people were there with their partners, with their kids. And, and I actually still get a little teary. I teared up. I started crying because I thought, wow, I did this. I, I have created a work opportunity for all of these people, and I'm looking out at this happy group of people. We just gave out Christmas bonuses. You know, things are going well with our clients. And so that was a really big moment for me when I said, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm, yeah. This actually worked out. How did you um, get support or mentorship and, and what kind of, you know, I mean, did you hire an HR person or what, how did you figure out, you know, how to support a big organization? Um, the, first, the first person I hired for that helping thing is that I actually, I hired an admin who really helped me get through, like helped me schedule things, helped me get through my, my emails and do all of that. I hired a salesperson to help me write contracts. I still went to all the client meetings and, and I wanted to go and, and, I, and somebody would call and I would a lot of times take the call and talk to somebody on the phone for an hour about the, what their challenges were and what they were trying to do. But I didn't like writing up the contracts. So mm-hmm. I hired somebody to help me with that. And then I ended up hiring a managing director in, you know, I think it was around 2010 or something. So it was fairly early on. I was a great leader. I was not necessarily a great manager. And there really is a difference, um, which obviously you know, and <laughs> lots of people know. But I, I, we used to joke that I was like in the Hunger Games. I would parachute somebody a laptop and I'd say, you, I sent you a laptop. Go forth yeah. and survive. <laughs> okay. and, and I just expected that of people. Right. What and more do you need besides a laptop? Absolutely. And, and so people really needed a lot more. And I, I would not understand. I'd say, well, I, I sent out the vacation schedule. Mm-hmm. Why do I have to send it out again? Like, don't you, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was not very good. I would sort of be, I had this great vision and this huge amount of enthusiasm and expertise. But I would leave people in the wake who, who needed more structure and more management. So I was really lucky to have some really great managing directors along the way. And Donna Robinson uh, was so good at coming in as a managing director. And then now she's the CEO. And so she really was able to bring a lot of structure to the whole HR functions, to the function of really taking care of the staff, of being able to really sit down and and see where we needed to go. And she made a lot of changes that really allowed us to grow, mm-hmm. where we took on traditional agency model of having account directors. We mm. never had account management beforehand. I worked with a client. I did the work. Mm-hmm. And that's what everyone did. And we just had, couldn't maintain that for these really large clients. Sure. That makes sense. Um, and it's important to know your own strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. and, and where you need to, yeah. to find someone complimentary. So you pretty quickly on decided that you wanted to to shift to an employee-owned model. 
explain what that means and and why that was the right path for Nina Hill. Yeah, I mean, it was, what, nine years into the business in which I said, I think I am going to sell. So, you know, the company had gotten quite large. We were at about five or six million in revenue every year. We had good profit margins. And I thought, you know what? I have a lot of money tied up in this company right now. Uh, There was a lot of operating revenue that was constantly staying in the company. But meanwhile, I was paying high taxes. And um, which I'm all for. I'm sort of a hemorrhaging heart liberal, but um, I was paying high taxes and that was, you know, difficult for me. But I also had gotten to a point in which there were clients I had never met. Mm. And I thought, why am I going to be doing something in which I take all the credit for this? And I think it's a really good maxim, the whole idea, if you don't have an exit plan, you don't have a plan. Hmm. And so you should always be thinking about what is your exit going to be? So I wanted to reduce some of the financial risk of me owning 100% of this company. We were running a lot of ads for our client, and that was, um, and so at any given time, we had maybe a million dollars in advertising, which I would have to, to pay back if my client went away. Uh-huh. or went belly up on me. Um, and so there was just a lot of financial risk going on. But also at the same time, I had this sort of exit plan where I thought, I love this job and I love doing it, but I'm no longer really doing the work anymore. And I love doing the work. I loved the small agency sort of quirky culture that, that really fit with me. And maybe it's time to allow other people who know what we're doing how to run this agency better, sort of step in. So at that point, I thought, I don't want to own the company, but not be running it. So I started looking towards the sale. But again, it really was about this idea of saying, I'm not doing all the work. All these, all my staff is doing all the work. I can't take credit for everything that's happened. I can't take credit Mm -hmm. for all the success that we've had. So I'm going to turn it into an employee-owned company. And and give other people some of the financial windfall of the work that they have made possible. How complicated is it to do that? It's not terribly complicated. It's about as complicated as selling a company. But in some ways, it's actually less complicated because everything is friendly. So if I, if, and you know, if you're a certain size, it might not be easy to sell your company. Mm-hmm. If you're a certain size as an ESOP, you know, you need to be a certain size as an ESOP, you need to be large enough to make it live on without you, because mm-hmm. it, is, it needs to live on without you. But it's a friendly entity. So I hire a lawyer who looks, who represents me as the owner. And then I hire a lawyer, a different lawyer, who represents this new entity that I'm going to create, which is the trust, the company. And so you split it from being you know, Nina Hale owned by me to Nina Hale Inc. owned by employee trust and me as the person who sold it. So they slowly buy the company from me. But we have this sort of friendly negotiation Mm -hmm. in which everybody agrees upon the dollar amount. And and then you strike the deal. So it was still kind of expensive. It was expensive to do. But there's a lot of professionals who specify in it. I'm actually on the board of a nonprofit that now has been created in Minnesota called the Minnesota um, Center for Employee Ownership. Hmm. And we help give sort of free and unpartial advice on creating an oh, ESOP so who for do employee you, trust. Who do you recommend this model for? What, what types yeah. of businesses are best suited? It's, it's great for a fully owned company. It's um, it, like anything, if you're going to sell it, if you're your own owner, if you own it 100%, that's great. Of course, it can be owned by multiple people. Um, it is, you need to be really about at least 10 to 15 employees, and you need to have at least a million in revenue. You need to have management that is going to stay on and commit to the business, because that is who's going to run the company into the future. 
but it's really for people who want to have some kind of legacy. They don't necessarily want to keep that legacy of the company that was built, and for people who really want to pass the wealth on to other people. The thing is, though, about an ESOP is that you may not, sometimes you don't get the same price for your company that you would get if you sold to a competitor. But a lot of times you might get the same price selling the company to an ESOP that you would get selling to another company. So there's not always a downside. Some people could think, oh, there's a financial downside to selling to an ESOP, but it's not always. Did you have any advisors who said to you, just sell it, sell to one of your competitors, sell to a big agency? Would you personally have, have made more money? Um, I looked into selling it and I did go talk to a couple. When I started thinking about this, I talked to a couple of um, companies, you know, M&A people, and they actually said, you really should be bigger. You're going to get a better multiple. They said, come back when you're 15 million in revenue Mm. and I'll sell you for the sky's the limit. And I thought, well, I could do that. But I actually, I also didn't want to sell to a competitor because I was tired. I was tired of working a million hours and my kid was becoming a teenager and I wanted to have more time with my family. I wanted to have more time to sort of pursue some other interests. Mm -hmm. I started having weird health things, like just kooky weird health things. So I thought, you know what, maybe it's time to scale back. And if I had sold to a competitor, I would have been in for another two years at least of 70-hour work weeks mm. because they want to keep the top people. Sure. Not always. Sometimes they sell it and they want to get rid of you right away. But, but I figured that that was probably not the case. Okay. So for you, it was a, it was a cost benefit of, of balancing out life and, and desires as, as opposed to just being focused on how do I make the most money on this? Yes, but I also was told, hey, you know what, I, I actually had a, a number in my head. And when I called the ESOP people and they told me, then they gave me a number, a general number. And I was like, oh, that was a lot more than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exciting. So, so it worked out great. I, so, I knew how much I needed to retire and it was more than I needed. Amazing. So I was like, wee. Isn't that the dream? So you mentioned that you have to have an exit strategy and this was part of it. Um, but you, when you became employee owned, you didn't leave there. There what you did stay on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually great because then I sold the company. I got the money for selling the company. And then I got to, um, then I got the benefit in the employee owned structure. So each year that somebody is working at an employee owned company, if you worked for at least half the year and you are there on the last day of the year, you get stock and you get it representing upon your share of salary. Hmm. And so I also made money or I bought stock and it was fairly significant until I fully left the company. So I got stock every year. So mm-hmm. it was sort of the gift that gives twice. Yeah, absolutely. You can see why that structure is appealing to people, especially mm-hmm. if they work hard. For you as a leader who had built this, your name is on the door, on, on the stationery. <laughs> and and yeah. once you were no longer, you know, the owner, was that weird for you in terms of your mindset or how you approached work? It wasn't weird for me at all as being employee-owned because I always saw it as a team, mm-hmm. as teamwork. It was always a team project, having this company and doing it. And I had already gotten to a point in which I realized this is not just about me. I had this whole sort of thing once in which I said, in which I was told I wasn't being brand um, appropriate. What do you mean? <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean? I am the brand. <laughs> I can I can be whatever I want. But that's selfish. That's a really selfish way of thinking. And it's really not about me anymore. It's about the company. Mm-hmm. And even though it was named after me, it really wasn't Nina, Nina's company. It was Nina Hale as a company. And I really got to learn that when people said Nina Hale, that it, they were talking about the company. And when they said Nina, they were talking about me. Mm. So When you did leave completely. Yeah. They changed the name. They did. And that was good. That was that was planned. <laughs> OK, you got that your was, name back. That was planned and negotiated. OK, I was going to say, was that a weird feeling? Did you no. feel like you were being erased? No, no, not at all. 
Although I did ask for them to keep the name of the ESOP to be the Nina Hale Consulting Incorporated ESOP Trust or whatever weird long name it is. Okay. So I did ask them to keep that because I felt that was such part of my legacy. But no, it was their company and my name was on it for too long. Anyways, we should, <laughs> so have, now, done it. We should have done it earlier. Now it's collective measures. It is collective measures. And do you have any involvement? Do you stay in touch? Do you pop in? Do you know <laughs> what they're doing? I do know what they're doing. I was on the board until the beginning of this year. Okay. So, and um, so I am aware of what has been happening, but I fully left the company. Um, before and like in the actually the very beginning of 2020, it was a good time to yeah. fully be gone. They, man, did they ever do a great job managing the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, afterwards. But um, I still am involved. But now I'm now I'm gone all the way. But I still text them. I said, hey, I'm coming on this great program. Or, yeah. you know, is there any things you want to give me or different things? So. Yeah. You, you don't get ideas and think, oh, I could start that. I know how to do this. I've been successful at this. <laughs> right now, no. And, and I knew at the time, I, I'm not on any for-profit boards. And in fact, I'm even pulling off my nonprofit boards. I had a window that was open at the time when I was leaving the company to go on pro- for-profit boards. And I actually turned down a couple of opportunities, knowing full well that I was closing my window. Hmm. And so um, I, I am so curious about so many different things, and I love going to school, and I love learning different things, but I also really enjoy the, the benefits of, of sort of an early retirement. I can drop everything and go on a trip, hmm. and I go on weird, difficult, challenging trips to go <laughs> look at birds in places off the grid. Okay. And I can drop everything to do that. I can I can drop everything to go um you know to go to school, back to school to learn how to sew clothing. Uh-huh. I do have one little thing that I keep threatening to start a business on, sort of a, a low profit business, and that is involved in uh in these bracelets that I make, these beaded bracelets that I make that um represent bird calls, the spectrogram of bird calls of endangered birds hmm. or um, extinct birds. But for that, I, I've sort of started working on the RFP to find a partner to produce them. To, uh-huh. And I have an idea of who I want to be making those and who I want to partner with that. But I, I kind of work in fits and starts on it. Mm-hmm. My husband calls it my life's work. And that he said, it's great because you can say you're always on the cusp of starting this business. Right. <laughs> but at some point, it's going to get old. <laughs> well, it still works for now. When you think back to that girl who was dialing up the Internet and announcing, here I am, do you still enjoy the Internet? Do you, what, what part of it do you like? What gets you excited today? Um. I I love I still love connecting with different people. I love learning new things. I love Google Maps. Really? I love looking <laughs> it's at It's kind of amazing, isn't it? It is. I used to I used to pore over atlases when I was a kid and now I pore over Google Maps. Um so there's a lot on that as well. I do think social media is really good for reaching out to people and staying in touch with people. Mhm. So there's a lot on the internet. I love seeing other photographers, and I I really enjoy photography, and I love seeing what other photographers are doing and various things. And I love the easy access to learning. I think that that the ability for people to learn and connect with people is stunning. It really is. It's kind of amazing to think how far we've come. Mm. You as well, Nina Hale, Nina the person, and Nina Hale the, the the business and the ESOP. Thank you for sharing your story. It's really quite an impressive journey, and and relatively fast when you think about all it's, that you built yeah. and accomplished. And now you have this amazing opportunity to do exactly what you want. I I know things came together in such a beautiful way. I am incredibly grateful. 
for how it all fell together. Yeah. Or, well, or got put together, got glued together like a puzzle. I was going to say, it didn't just fall. <laughs> no, you it made didn't. it. You made it. That, I, you I, made it that way. I did make it, but luckily all the pieces were there for me to grab. Yeah. Well, thank you again for thank sharing you. your story. It's great to see you. Thanks, Ellie. Well, Nina makes early retirement look real good. She could write the book on how to do it right. But what really resonated with me, and I'm guessing a lot of entrepreneurs, is when she said, if you don't have an exit plan, you don't have a plan. For more insight on that exit planning, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Glenn Karwaski is an adjunct faculty member teaching marketing, creativity, and innovation in business. He also has an agency of his own, Karwaski and Courage. Glenn, I'm wondering what you thought of Nina's focus on the exit planning from the very beginning. Well, I absolutely think that there should be some kind of a succession plan, right? Especially if you've got a business like Nina's, right, which is privately held versus publicly held, which, you know, there is always a succession plan at a publicly held company. Sometimes the person who's leaving may not want to be leaving, but the board has made a decision that it's time to go. Right. Mm -hmm. But you should have some plan in place, right? Especially at an agency, the size of Nina's right, which was a mid-sized agency, you know, an extremely successful agency, by the way, you know, I've long been an admirer of uh of their work and and the business that she created there but you should definitely have a plan because if the transition is too abrupt it's going to be very anxiety uh provoking mm-hmm. <laughs> inducing uh among employees and i don't think you set yourself up for success at all versus having a plan and then executing that plan. Right, right. She talked about the the long goodbye. So in contrast to Nina, I I know you you've seen some cautionary tales. What are what are some mistakes that you see other business founders making so that we can all try to avoid them? Well, one, you know, I'd love to take a line from The Godfather, right? <laughs> a, a favorite movie of a lot of people, right? Where they say you know, it's business, it's not personal. And I think that in a lot of cases, you have CEOs, and let's be honest here, CEOs didn't get to be CEOs having zero ego at all, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but I think they make a mistake when they look at whoever is coming in after them, right? Or whoever they might be mentoring. And are looking for a clone or someone that is going to, you know, duplicate what they've done Mm. versus letting the person make some changes, right? When there's a, a, a brand new leader in whatever organization, people expect change, right? So change is going to happen. I think that where um, a lot of transitions go wrong is when the CEO kind of leaves but stays in terms of they can't let go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that they should mentor but not manage whoever is coming in. So you don't want a situation where the current CEO or whoever the leader is is constantly looking over someone's shoulders, sure. right? They've, they've, they've got to let them do things differently. Right. And they've got to prepare mentally to see that. Yeah, you know, I think because, that can be the hardest. Yeah, right. And in Nina's case, right? I mean, that was her baby. She started that from nothing, like literally. It was her name. From, it was everything. From yeah. scratch, exactly, right? But I was so impressed with how she handled that transition Mm -hmm. um you know and towards the end of your interview you talk about um putting pieces of the puzzle together right Mm -hmm. i think when there's going to be a change in leadership you've got a new puzzle and whoever that new leader is 
is going to have to arrange those puzzle pieces the way they see them. And it may not be exactly how you would see them if you're the CEO who is leaving, but you have to be open to the possibility that someone is going to do things differently and they're going to be as good, if not better. And I think that's what you want as a departing CEO. Instead of hanging on, right, you want whoever it is to come in and make things better. Right. Right. You got to be open to that. Well, it makes a lot of sense. Glenn Karwaski, thank you so much for the perspective. Are you going to take your own advice with your agency? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Uh, one day? Of course. Of course. Maybe one day. Down the road here. Thank you. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you so much. And thank you to our presenting partner, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. For more about the show, back episodes, more insights from our St. Thomas professors, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, take a minute to rate and review us. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to By All Means. Work to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Associate Dean Laura Dunham, for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means. Music